Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 15, please. Romans, the 15th chapter. Romans 15. We're glad to have Brother Roger in the service this morning, and I want to ask Brother Roger to come right now and lead us as we pray. Before we go into the Word of God, Brother Roger, would you come, please? May we bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much that we can be in your house. Lord, we ask sincerely out of our hearts that you'll make this a worship experience, a time of feasting on your word, a time of drinking in the blessings of God and strengthening our lives that we might go out and share with others who don't know Christ. Thank you for the message and music how it thrills our hearts to know that no matter what else heaven has, Jesus is the one that'll make heaven worth it all. Bless Brother Richard as he preaches today. Give him strength and power. And may the word of God find a lodging place in each heart. And may souls come to know Christ as Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Romans chapter 15. There are two divisions in this chapter. As we think together of onward tis the Lord's command, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Paul had written to the Roman Christians, though he had never been to the city of Rome, it was very unusual for Paul to write a letter to a church that he had never visited. But well, we must remember that Spain was the western frontier of that day in which Paul lived. Notwithstanding, we have read in the Reader's Digest during the month of February that it is the understanding now of some of the great minds and archaeologists and discoverers that the Europeans were in the North American continent as early as 800 B.C and that some of the passages that are referred to in the Bible that refer to Tarshish in Spain referred to ships that were going to Gaul and Gaul was not found in Spain and some believe that Gaul now might have been points in North America. Notwithstanding all of that, at least in the recorded history of the times of Paul, Spain was the western frontier and he desired earnestly to preach the gospel in Spain. And so from Corinth, he wrote to the Roman Christians and he said, I want to go to Spain and I hope by the Lord's will that when I come through Rome, you will enable me to go on to Spain and I'll go there with your blessings. As to whether Paul ever got to Spain, we're not sure. We do know he got to Rome. And he wrote to the Roman Christians, in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, he wrote how the gospel was desperately needed because men were under the sin curse. In chapter 1, the Gentiles were lost because they had not lived up to the code written on their own hearts. In chapters 2 and 3, the Jews were lost because though they had the word of God, they did not keep it. In chapter 3, there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Chapter 4, Paul gives that wonderful illustration of faith 
Abraham believed God and that belief was counted to him for righteousness. In chapter 5, grace greater than our sin. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul outlines the wonderful truths of sanctification, of how there is victory in Christ. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God, Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul deals with election and the Jews' place in prophecy and the fact that we're living now in the time of the Gentiles. But the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and Israel again will know the King and the gospel of Christ will be preached to the world through Jewish lips once again during the tribulation period. Now beginning in chapter 12, Paul becomes very practical. And he says, on the basis of everything that I've said already, I beg you, I beseech you to present your body a living sacrifice to God. Now this is written to Christians, people who have already received Christ as Savior. He says, I want you to present your body on the altar as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. God wants not only our heart, not only our spirit, but while we're in this tabernacle of clay, God wants our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our tongue. He wants this body placed on the altar of service because God has no hands but our hands. He has no feet but our feet. He has no lips but our lips to tell men how he died. In chapter 13, we read about the Christian and government and our relationship to the nation in which we live. In chapter 14, it is high time that we awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. And when we come to chapter 15, two definite marks, two definite divisions of this chapter. Number one, the marks of a Christian fellowship. The marks of a Christian fellowship. And number two, world vision because of the love of the Holy Spirit. World vision because of the love of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the marks of Christian fellowship. Let me read the first 13 verses. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us look, uh, please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant to you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the nations and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye nations with his people. And again, praise the Lord all ye nations and laud him all ye peoples. And again Isaiah said, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the nations, in him shall the nations trust. Now the God of hope fill 
you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. There are eight marks of a Christian fellowship in these first 13 verses. Eight marks. And very quickly and briefly, would you enumerate them in your mind, in your heart, perhaps with a pen on pencil, on paper, and let these become goals of this fellowship, of the Glendale Baptist Fellowship, of this body of Christ, of this family of God. Number one, consideration of its members for each other. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. God here puts his finger on a truth that is sometimes overlooked. In the fellowship of believers, there are some with different temperaments. There are some with different talents. There are some with different uh, gifts. There are some with different abilities. And there are some with differing degrees of strength. Some are strong. Some are weak. And the, inf the injunction of Scripture is that one of the marks of a Christian fellowship, keep in mind Paul is writing this to Rome, to the Roman Christians there. He says, number one, we need to be considerate one of another and not to go every man just to please himself, but all of us as a body of Christ to please one another. Let him that is weak be confirmed by he that is strong. And let him that is strong shed the influence and the shadow of his life into the life of him who is weak. This is related to what Paul said to the Galatian Christians. He said something wonderful in chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we see somebody stumbling, when we see somebody who is weaker than we are ourselves, we do not look down our nose at that individual. We do not gossip about him. We do not call on the telephone and say, oh, did you hear what sister so-and-so did or brother so-and-so and how they stumbled last night and they fell? Oh, just think of that. And by the time that sister or brother gets to church the next morning, the telephone calls have been all over the city and everybody knows all of his problems and burdens. I say to you, the way of God concerning that man or that sister is that we have a prayer meeting, that we aid that individual by prayer and by going in a, with hands of sympathy and hearts of love, wrap the blanket of God's love around that person and bring him back. That's God's plan. Consider the other man. Let us not live unto himself. Let none of us live unto himself, but let us be considerate and have one of the marks of the Christian fellowship. Number two, we need to study the Scripture. Notice verse, verse, two, verse th four. For whatsoever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. The second earmark or identifying mark of a Christian fellowship is that we study the Word of God together. I admit that the most fascinating kind of preaching is preaching that is topical, where a man can get up and just preach at points one, two, and three, very little regard to the Word of God. But the most profitable kind of preaching is expository, 
where we go down the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and find those nuggets of gold and bring them to our attention. And that's what the Scripture is suggesting we do as a body of Christ, that we study the Word of God. We study it in our homes. We study it in our Sunday school classes. We study it in little groups. We study it in classes. We study it in training union. We study it in the pulpit. We study it when we get down together as the body of Christ. We study the Word of God. How many times this book, God's Great Love Letter to Us, has been a mystery book to us? I've had people say to me, Why, preacher, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. If I ask for hands this morning and ask how many of you have ever said, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. Or I don't read this book because I can't understand it. Oh, let me tell you, dear friend, for a long time, and I say this with regret, when I was a teenager and first got back to God, I began to read the Bible. And I read chapter, I read the Bible through. I loved it. And I read some of the hard parts and some of the easy parts. And I admit that I enjoyed reading the easier parts better than the hard parts. When I got to Revelation, I just stumbled. When I got to Daniel, some of those big images and the head of gold and all of those things, and I, got, I just stumbled. I didn't understand it. I got to the Song of Solomon. I couldn't understand it. And so forth, I went to the seminary. And I thought surely I'd get some help there. But I want to tell you, this is no criticism. You do not go to the seminary necessarily to study the Bible. You go to the seminary to study about the Bible. And I studied all about it. I learned all about who didn't write what and who they thought might have written something and so on. And again, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying this. And as a result of that, I was scared away from the books of Daniel and Revelation and some of the books that were difficult to understand. And for years, some of you who have been with us a long time, know that in the early years I was in this church, I didn't speak much from Revelation or Daniel. I didn't understand it. And then, through a time when God dealt with my heart, I began to go into the book that I didn't understand. And I took it verse by verse and marked it and tried to outline it and compared it with other scripture. And suddenly, those books that had been up dead to me, hidden, veiled, became opened and clear because I studied them. Now I say to that, I give that word of biography to you to say we need to study the Word of God in our homes and everywhere we are. One of the marks of the Christian fellowship is that we're not ignorant of the Bible. We need to know it. How many of you have your Bible with you this morning? Lift it up, please. Lift this precious book up. Amen. God bless you. Johnny has people say at his church, if you brought your Bible, say amen. If you didn't, say oh me. I'm not going to ask how many oh me's there are here today. But let me urge you to bring the Bible, to study the wonderful Word of God. That's one of the marks of the Christian community, the Christian fellowship. We're not a club. We're a body of Christ. And we need to dig into the Scriptures. And dear beloved friend, the Bible teaches the priesthood of every believer. I'm not your priest. In Baptist churches, in Bible-believing churches, we do not call the minister a priest. A priest, calling that man a priest, infers that he is an intermediator between you and God. And there is no such intermediator today except Christ. 
Christ is the only one that stands between man and God. And man can come directly to God through the Holy Spirit, through Christ Jesus. And when you study the Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to be your guide. He wrote it. He knows what it means. And if you'll just get full enough of the Holy Spirit, He'll reveal to you what the verses mean. So we need to study the Word of God. Number three, point number three, fortitude. Now the God of patience and consolation, that word patience in the original language is from a Greek word which means fortitude. It means when you face all the obstacles and trials and difficulties, instead of giving up and throwing in the towel and saying, well, I just quit. It's too rough. It's too tough. It's too difficult. Why, listen, dear friend, what did we enroll in in the Christian faith? Did we enroll in some kind of bed of rosy ease? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? No, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. And we need fortitude in the face of all the obstacles and difficulties. Nobody needs a set of fortitude more than teenagers today going to junior high, senior high, and those in the university. We need fortitude when we face all the obstacles and all the peers who scoff and laugh and poke fun at the faith of our heart that has transformed our life. They don't understand. They say you're tied to your mother's apron strings or you're some kind of weakling or you're some kind of sissy when they don't understand that the real sissy, the real weakling, the real one who is tied to somebody's apron strings is that one who does not have the fortitude, the guts, the courage to stand against drugs, against dope, against cigarettes, against profanity, against pornography, against open free sex, and all the things that move in on the teenagers and young people today. We need fortitude in the face of all this. And in the Christian fellowship, we need the fortitude of God, the patience of God, looking for the glorious appearing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, we need hope. Look, verse 6, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another in Christ. Verse 13, now the God of hope, we need hope. Hope is a steadfast anchor in the midst of turbulent, tossing difficulties. I speak to pe people today here in the auditorium and those by the radio who have given up hope. They've had home problems. They've had home difficulties. They've had financial problems. They've had moral bankruptcy in their own lives. And they've come to a point in life where they say, I don't want to go on living. What's the use? And so they sit alone in their night of despair, hopeless. I have good news for you, dear friend. Whoever you are, wherever you are, there is hope in Christ. There is always a land of beginning again. When we have reached the end of our rope, somebody said, tie a knot and hold on. Well, that's pretty good. But I want to tell you, when we reach the end of our hope, when we reach the end of our rope, when we reach the end of our strength, look up. Look to Christ and let Him come and flood your heart with His peace. 
his power, his plenty, and his potency and his pardon. He'll do it. Our hope is in Christ. Fifthly, we need harmony. The marks of the Christian fellowship is a mark of harmony. Oh, listen to this. That ye may be one with one mind and one mouth. Glorify God. God wants his people. I'm in verse 6 there. God wants his people to be in harmony. Now I believe in diversity. And I recognize that all of us have differing gifts and all of us have differing personalities and all of us have something different to contribute to the work of the Lord. But in the work of God, there must be harmony. Harmony. When the great crusades are held in the cities, how is it that there's a great impact? Back in the days when Billy Sunday preached, Billy Sunday would go to a community and, and he would get with all the Bible-believing churches. And those churches would band together in prayer, in faith, in uh, hope, in, in uh, counseling, in soul-winning zeal. And they'd rent a big building or a tabernacle or build a big tabernacle or rent a tent in the days of Sam Jones and Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody and those men. And what happened? They all gathered together under the preaching, the preaching of the man of God who preached the Word of God and great impact was held in the, was found on the city, was made on the city. A number of years ago when I was in the seminary, there was a preacher by the name of John Haggai who came to Louisville. Some of you know John Haggai. Brother Carl used to be a deacon in that church, right? John Haggai went to Ninth and Old Baptist Church in Louisville. And shortly after he went, there came billboards all over Bowling Green. I mean, all over Louisville. Lived in this city so long, I've forgotten what, a, what city I was in. Lived in, in Louisville. There were great billboards. And here's what the billboard said. Great big picture of John Edmund Haggai. I'll never forget it. And then it said, Hear God's man with God's message. Ninth and Old Baptist Church. That's all it said. Told the time of the service. That's all. And those appeared all over Louisville. And I want to tell you what happened. Over at the seminary, they made fun. The preacher said, well, look at that big shot, that bigot. Why, he thinks he's something. He's advertising his picture all over town and everybody, he wants everybody to come over there. And I want to tell you what they did. Some of the seminary students went over there to see what was going on. Oh, they made fun. They laughed, but they went over there. And you know what? They couldn't get in for the crowds. It was jammed and packed. John Edmund Haggai started a perennial, started what he called a, a continual revival. And he started on Sunday. He said, we're not going to end. We're not going to set any closing date. He had service Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, and on and on and on for weeks and weeks and weeks. You remember, am I right? I don't know how long it went. I got in on the third or fourth week of it, and people were getting saved, and lives were getting changed, and the Ninth and Old Baptist Church began to grow, and God began to move in power because they were united around the man of God, preaching the Word of God. All of Louisville felt the impact of what was going on. Now, the devil didn't like that a bit. The enemies of God didn't like it. The enemies of the cross didn't like it. And they began to raise fingers and accusations. And, and I'll tell you, all the water in the world won't sink a ship unless it gets inside. And all the trouble and problems of the world won't hurt a church unless it gets inside. 
and all the contention and gripiness and grumbleness of the world cannot hurt the work of God unless it gets inside. The devil tried it on the outside long enough, and when he couldn't get any further on the outside, he got on the inside and tried to tear that precious, wonderful, godly church all to smithereens. Am I right? Yeah. Now Paul is saying there needs to be harmony in the work of God. That's one of the earmarks of the church, of the Christian community, where we gather together as one under the preaching of the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God. And when a church does that, there is no end to what can be done. And I have an idea that part of what Paul planted in the heart of those Roman Christians began to mushroom and grow. And if we'll read church history, we know that in, in century one and two and three, the Roman church began to grow. Oh, that was long before they ever heard of the Roman Catholic movement. But that church in the city of Rome gained such power and such influence that it wasn't long until the Roman emperor heard about Jesus and he wanted to get saved. I don't know whether he ever got saved. Constantine, he joined the church. I'm not sure whether he got saved or not, but he heard about God. He heard about Jesus. Because I think what Paul wrote here, she might be of one man. Let me go on quickly. Oh, I don't know whether I'll get finished this morning or not. There's so much in the Bible. It's like a great wealth. It's like a great, great treasure. And it's like a treasure chest that has no bottom and you dig down and down and down and you pull up all these treasures. Doesn't it bless your soul? If you want to sleep, just go right on sleeping. The rest of us are going to enjoy what we're doing here this morning. All right, listen to this. Number six, number six, they praised. They praised the Lord. And we need great praise to God, praises to the Lord. That's what we've been doing in this song service. I heard somebody say one time, why do you all sing so much over at Glendale? Well, I feel sorry. I, I, I pity you. And with all earnest sympathy, I say this to you, I pity you. You're not going to enjoy heaven if you think we sing too much here. Over there in that wonderful city, they're going to sing forever. I can just hear them. For the Lord God omnipotent. Only sound better than that. And they'll just sing and sing and sing. And it'll be wonderful throughout all eternity. They'll be praising the King and praising the Lord. And that's what we're to do. That's one of the signs of a church that's on fire for God, doing what God wants it to do, singing and praising the Lord. And in number seven, they were to be like Jesus. Oh, listen to this. In verse three, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. One of the earmarks of the Christian community were to be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, this my plea. In the home, out in the crowd, wherever I am, to be like Jesus. Herbert Lockyer tells the story of a man who went to the door of a, of a great mansion in England, in London. And the butler came to the door. This man stood there. He asked to see the Lord of the home. The butler went back to the man who owned the home, the landowner, and said, there's a man at the door to see you. And the man said, who is it? Oh, the butler said, I don't know, but he reminds me of Jesus. I wonder if anybody's mistaken you and me for Jesus lately. They used to call Lottie Moon over in China the heavenly book visitor. Me for Jesus lately? That's one of the evidences, the marks of the Christian fellowship. 
We're to be like our Lord. We're to be like our Master. We're to have His compassion, His tenderness, His care, His concern. We're to have His love. Oh, we're to have His compassion, but listen to this. We're also to have His wrath. You say, wrath? This meek and lowly, gentle Jesus had wrath? Oh, yes. He hated sin. He hated sin. And when he went into the temple, he saw the money changers. What did he do? He got a rope, got, a, got a, a big rope or some kind of a cat of nine tails or something. And he went in there and whipped them and lashed them and got them out of the temple. When, when you and I lose our ability to get mad over sin, there's something wrong with us. We're not worth much. If we don't have enough salt in us to be righteously indignant over sin, something's wrong with us. We need to be like the Lord. Hate sin, love God, love the sinner. I've said this over and over again, I hate liquor. I hate every ounce of liquor. And I'll tell you, I know sometimes you could use it as an emergency for medicinal purposes, I understand that. And I understand during World War I, during the awful flu epidemic that many people had some whiskey prescribed to them by doctors in order to help them with the flu. I understand that. We live in a day with all the wonderful miracle drugs and you don't have to take whiskey for that. You don't have to take liquor for that. I hate liquor, but I want to tell you this. I love the liquor men. I love those men that run those liquor stores. Oh, I hate their business. And as I've told you before, I've been in almost every liquor store in this town. Almost every tavern in this town. Not all of them, most of them. I expect to be in all of them before I go. But I'll tell you, I've gone in there to talk to them about Jesus. And I've tried to carry my Bible. And if they would listen, I tried to tell them about the Lord. If they wouldn't listen, I told them that I loved them, but I hated their business. I've been to some of their homes and pled with them earnestly about Christ. I love their souls, but I despise their business. It damns men's souls, and it turns loose inhibitions in men's lives and minds so that they get out of their minds and do things they would never dream of doing otherwise. And then Paul says, one of the marks of the Christian fellowship is fullness. Look at verse 13. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, in believing that you may abound in hope through power of the Holy Spirit. The believers in Christ need to be full of hope and joy and peace and power. I could preach a whole three or four hours on that one verse. Oh, if you and I could only be full of God, full of God, running over with God. I don't believe it. I don't like to use the phrase, get high on God. I don't think that's scriptural. But I tell you what we do need. We need to be full of God. We need to be full of His precious Holy Spirit. And all those things that are mentioned here are bound up in the theme of the last part of this chapter, and that is the love of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is filling us with His love, there is a world vision of a world in need of the glorious gospel of men who need Jesus. It's wonderful to think of the love of God, great and holy God, who is so concerned about the entire universe, continually engaged in watching over His creation, His universe, and individuals' lives. We're thankful that the Scripture says much about God's love, for God so loved the world 
We think about Jesus and his great love to us. Let this mind be in you, Paul said, who, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But I want to tell you, we wouldn't know the love of God. We wouldn't really know the love of Jesus in our day if it were not for the love of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15, verse 30, chapter 15, verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and now underscore this, and for the love of the Spirit, the love of the Spirit. We read about the love of God, the love of Jesus, the Son, but here we read about the love of the Holy Spirit, and everything in this section of Romans 15 sort of centers around the love of the Holy Spirit, because here's what the love of the Holy Spirit does. When the Spirit of God is in charge of our lives, He will enable the preacher to open and interpret the Word. He will cause a response to the Word of God. He will give joy and life to living. He will take away the tired feeling. He will erase boredom. He will give enthusiasm to the work we do for God. And He will give life to our visitation programs. Young man, young woman, J.B. Chapman said, make the most of your life. Go after souls. Go after them the best way you know how. But go after them. Let the Holy Spirit's love overwhelm you. Do not listen to those who warn you that you will offend and drive them away by your persistence. Go after souls. Go after them by private and public testimony. Go after them by service and by prayer. But go after them. Go after them with love and a burdened heart. Go, the, go, with, go after them by kind deeds. Go after them by song and praise. Go after them when they are bereaved and in sorrow. Go after them when they are especially favored by God and man. But go. Go after them. This soul-winning life is your life if you live it in the love of the Holy Spirit. There it is, the love of the Holy Spirit. Well, listen to this. The word for Holy Spirit in the Scripture is pneumoagios. Pneuma is the Greek word. In the Hebrew, it's ruach. That word means the same. It means wind. It means the breath of God the life of God, the wind of God. We could study it as it relates to the creation of the universe. We could study it as the Holy Spirit relates to the bringing of the Word of God to our minds and hearts through the Bible because the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. But I like to study it in relationship to the new birth because Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, except a man be born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God because that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. What is he saying? He's saying the fleshly birth that you've had is not sufficient. Now the scripture speaks of being born of the water and the Spirit. Medical doctors tell us that the water birth is the gush just prior to the coming of new life into the world. In my opinion, that's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3 because he's liking it to the fleshly birth. 
But then he said, you have to have something more than that. Just because you were born into a family, just because you were born into a family that loved God or went to church, just because you were born into a family that made you go to church, just because you were born into a family that was on its way to heaven, that doesn't mean that you're on your way to heaven. You have to be born again yourself. You have to be born the second time. And how do you get this done in your life? It's by the love of the Holy Spirit. Except a man be born of the, fle of the, of the flesh, of the water, and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There are men in this room, women in this room, teenagers and young people and children in this room this morning who have been born of the flesh. You know your mother, your daddy, your grandpa, your grandma, your great-grandma, your great-granddaddy. Some of you can even trace your lineage back to the Mayflower and some of you back to a Sing Sing. But I want to tell you, if that's all you can do, you're on your way to hell. On your way to hell. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh and all it'll ever bring you is death. The wages of sin is death. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You say, preacher, how do you get born of the Spirit? Well, if a man is willing to humble himself and come to God and say, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell, but I want Jesus. And I want to invite Jesus to come and live in my heart and my life. If you'll do that, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your background, whatever your sins, whatever your shame, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow because the Holy Spirit loves you and wants to draw you to Christ. Will you come to him today? May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed as we pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this wonderful word of God like a treasure chest. We pray that now some who have never been saved will open their hearts to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And some who are already saved will come to say, I want a deeper walk with the Lord. I want those marks of Christian fellowship true in my life. Oh, Spirit of God, move across this place. And may people be saved today in Jesus' name. Amen. May we stand, please. <clears throat> We're going to sing God's invitation. This is God's invitation. Please keep in mind, it isn't mine, it's the Lord's. As we sing in just a moment, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. The invitation is twofold. Number one, if you're here without Christ, you've never received him into your heart, I want to plead with you this morning. Do not leave without God. You may say, well, I didn't really expect to be saved today. Oh, friend, God brought you here. It's no accident you're here. You may say a friend invited you, but really God brought you here. And the reason you're here is because the Holy Spirit has set his affections on you and is drawing you to Christ. And I want to urge you to come to Christ this morning with your sins, with your shame, but be honest about it. Come to him and say, Lord, I need you. If you'll come, we want to kneel with you and pray. Show you from the Word of God how to know you're going to heaven when you die. Will you come? Secondly, you're already saved. You've never confessed Jesus? You come and do it today. Never been baptized? Come and say, I'm going to follow the Lord in baptism as soon as I can. If your church membership is somewhere else and God wants you here, you come. 
Let our clerk write for your letter. Do what God leads you to do. While we wait, while we pray, will you come right now? Amen.